Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Patrick Riley, and this is the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Anne Gray Fisher about her book, The Streets Belong to Us, Sex, Race, and Police Power from Segregation to Gentrification. Um, Annie, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. So as is customary on this program, I'd like uh, to talk about how you came to this project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love this question. It started 15 years ago. I was working at a labor union local in Boston. And my boss had on his uh, wall a framed poster for Puma, the prostitutes union of Massachusetts. I didn't know at the time um, that Puma was part of a nationwide and even actually global movement for what was called at the time prostitutes rights. Um, But I was so fascinated by the idea of a criminalized group of women mobilizing to make political demands. Um, And I was also, while I was working at the union, taking night classes to get an MFA in nonfiction writing. Um, So I started to do some research. This was my first encounter with archival research, and I became absolutely obsessed with Puma, with the sex workers' rights movement. I was a regular at the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe, um, and in a really miraculous um, uh, coincidence, many of the leaders of Puma were my neighbors in the neighborhood in Boston that I lived in. They opened their garages and their filing cabinets to me and um, really uh, helped to create what Kelly Lytle Hernandez calls a rebel archive. Um, So I... Uh, so I wrote my MFA thesis on Puma, and around that time, um, my mentor in the MFA program suggested that I consider applying to PhD programs in history. I didn't know anyone who had gotten a PhD. Um, I didn't know what that meant, but I was pretty burned out at the union, and I thought five years of funding to work on this book project sounded like a really great idea. Um, which seems extremely naive <laughs> um, in retrospect. But um, so I applied to programs uh, to write this sort of um, larger history of the sex workers' rights movement. And that book has since been written by Melinda Shadavert. It's called Sex Workers Unite. It's excellent. I highly uh, recommend folks to check it out if they're curious. Um, so by the time I got to grad school, I was not really um, 
I was kind of tired with the major debates in the the major political debates around sex work. You know, the questions sort of fall around, you know, is um, is uh, sex work a form of labor or is it a form of coerced enslavement, right? The sort of sex trafficking, sex work divide. Um, I was really bored with those questions. I knew where I stood and, you know, many, many activists from, um, Margot St. James, Flo Kennedy, and so many others um, since have um, done a lot of that analytical work uh, to make the case for um, for sex workers' rights. So I really, in grad school, had the opportunity to sort of step back and think about what united um, sex workers, what united uh, what united them, despite you know different political different sets of politics and. Um, different uh, tactics and demands for their strat- for for better conditions in their lives, and I saw that what really connected everyone, sex workers and those profiled as such, um, was exposure to police. And it's no coincidence that I landed on thinking about policing and sexual policing, right? The ways that the state targets and controls people's bodies based on their presumed sexual practices. I started grad school in 2012, just months after Trayvon Martin had been um, murdered by George Zimmerman. I was in the archives for the first time the summer that Zimmerman was acquitted and Black Lives Matter was born. Um, You know, by 2014, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and the Black Feminist-led African-American Policy Forum was putting out uh, a report and um, and creating the phrase "say her name" to showcase the invisibility of Black women in the um, surging uh, movement against police violence. Um, so I absolutely knew at that point, right, that um, that focusing on sexually profiled women's exposure to police violence was going to be the the focus of my work. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about um, two of the uh, very interesting things that you mentioned, which was uh, first, uh, your kind of um, personal or in kind of the personal relationships that developed with people in this movement, either before uh, you embarked on the research project in earnest or uh, during the course of of the research, can you talk about um, uh, some of the people that you met uh, and, and the extent to which they kind of inspired or challenged your thinking around uh, th- uh, the questions you were asking? Well, absolutely. Um, one of the first things I noticed early on in the research, particularly when I was um, talking to leaders in Puma, was just how much um, sex workers and women who are repeatedly profiled as sex workers are experts of police practices. Right? They knew um, they knew exactly, you know, the the logics that structured policing. They understood um, the unique vulnerabilities of people exposed to police discretion, and um, and so I really developed a deep respect um, and an ongoing um, 
an ongoing um, admiration for the the expertise and the vision that policed women, targeted women, um, uh, create and generate about police violence. Um, and so in my book, even though um, there's only one chapter on feminist activisms and sex worker and their allies activisms, um, and that is looking at uh, the sort of debates between what we would call carceral feminists and um, and and anti-capitalists, women of color feminists um, who are challenging that model in the 80s and 90s. Um, so I have that chapter at the end, but beyond that, I'm really looking to keep the lens on policing practices, police logics, right, to kind of expose and showcase um, not just how racist and sexist logic structure police work, but how police forced forced open, right, rush past the limits of their own power, the own their own discretionary scope of their power to really consolidate and grow um, their power across the 20th century through the logics and practices of sex policing. That's great. Um, I'm I'm wondering about this this question of kind of like police producing their own issues even while they are accruing uh, the, the almost the 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 power to uh, 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 I wouldn't say solve them but the the, the power to kind of uh, suppress dissent against uh, these overreaches um, can you talk about some of the um, debates that happened within police departments over uh, police professionalism. I thought that your discussion of, um, you know, these um, relatively liberal police chiefs like DeGrazia in Boston or um, the efforts of officers in the Afro-American Patrol League and how they clashed with um, uh, predominantly uh white rank and file that was in the midst of uh, a labor union were, was very compelling. And uh, uh, they, I think, in my view, are a huge reason why the battles over discretion kind of um, took the turn that they did. So could you talk about some of those lines of fracture uh, that, uh, you know, not only divided um uh, police departments and the communities where they were patrolling, but but police departments themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's important to kind of bookend the, this history, right? When, uh, when my book starts in the 1920s um, and in the scandalous aftermath of prohibition, um, police are experiencing a real crisis of legitimacy. They are widely held in contempt as brutal, corrupt, um, and ineffective, right? Um, in the Wickersham Commission report, right, this federal report in 1932, the lead author, August Woolmer, says that, um, you know, it's sort of a a well-known police reformer in his own right, so-called police reformer in his own right, right? They call police, um, you know, law enforcement is one of our national jokes, right? So kind of this um, widespread criticism of police that I think would be really unimaginable to contemporary readers today. 
Um, and then on the other side of the book, right, with the rise of broken windows policing, um, and I think we could argue even to this day, right, police are understood as, you know, not urban goons, but now, right, urban saviors, right, and particularly in the eyes of white Americans. And police are sort of widely seen as an essential component of a prosperous and well-ordered, you know, safe city, Right. So what happens, um, you know, between that, you know, roughly 60 years, um, many, many, right, many, many more crises of legitimacy are going to um, uh, police departments are going to have to reckon with many more crises of legitimacy in this period. Um, in the post-war period in particular, well, where to start? So you're asking me about... Um, sort of this liberal moment in the 1970s. Um, you know, particularly after the uprisings of the 1960s, police are once again reeling from a lack of legitimacy, from wide, um, a rising chorus of, you know, sort of liberal white-dominated media saying that police are, um, you know, excessively violent. And um, and so you have entering this space a uh, liberal police chiefs, like you said, Robert de Grazia in Boston, um, or even, you know, in Atlanta, you have, um, you know, in sort of the, the, the leadership in Atlanta, right, where you have the, um, you know, first black police chief in the early 1970s, as well as the, um, you know, first black mayor of a big city, uh, of, a, of a big Southern city in 1973 with Maynard Jackson, um, who appoints, right, uh, Reginald, Reggie Eves as his, you know, as the first black police commissioner. So we have these moments, right, of, um, of sort of liberals trying to determine the course of, um, of policing. Um, you know, it's no coincidence that this is the same period where activists like sex workers in the sex worker rights movement and more radical activists as well as some liberal clergy are pressing for the decriminalization of a variety of uh, crimes that are considered to be, you know, um, quote unquote, victimless crimes. This includes abortion until 1973. This includes homosexuality, right? And this also includes uh, commercial sex or so-called, you know, prostitution. Um, because these morals laws are so dependent on police discretion and police uh, initiative in order to be enforced. Whenever there's a moment of this crisis of legitimacy for police, or whenever there's a moment when police power is most hotly contested, it will, you know, you see across the 20th century, these debates are playing out around sex policing, morals policing, other ways in which police are enforcing so-called moral order or public order with a high degree of discretion. Um, and in these liberal moments, uh, it's distinct in both Boston and Atlanta, but in these liberal moments, what you're really seeing are um, uh, police officers, whether in active collaborate or police leaders, whether in active collaboration with or in um, or in sort of grudging collaboration with business elites, uh, white homeowners, 
right, who are exploiting um, a fear of crime, which is really just a racialized panic over the decamping of white capital and white homeowners from the cities to the suburbs. Um, And they're really exploiting that to make a case for a greater need for law enforcement in order to protect essentially white capital from, um, from what these middle-class and elite whites see as this rising tide of black moral disorder and violent criminality. Um, And so in Boston, as in Atlanta, um, the, you know, city hall has to, um, city hall has to appease these white businessmen, white homeowners, Um, And as much as they recognize the historic and an ongoing racist violence of policing, um, they also need to um, win re-election, right? Um, Or the, um, you know, de Grazia himself eventually resigned um, because he could no longer work with City Hall. De Grazia, who had, who was very clear and very outspoken about racism, um, within and and what he called machismo within the 1970s Boston Police Department, um, tried in some ways to um, uh, to bring equity right um, to the police force, but at the same time he um, built up these the capacity of the BPD to engage in paramilitary elite paramilitary units right, which were essentially just deployed to do vice policing on city streets, right? And they ran lots of um, uh, raids and and undercover operations, essentially, right? This um, militarized police unit with, you know, veterans, war veterans um, on the police force um, engaging in these elite operations to arrest sexually profiled women, right? So, um, but De Grazia is both trying to reform, bring equity, bring um, more Black officers onto the force, while at the same time, you know, um, building up the capacity of um, of the BPD to engage in very racist and sexist practices, right? And this was a necessary political strategy. Um, and in Atlanta, it was... Uh, the same case where Maynard Jackson tries very hard, actually, to um, to equalize the priorities of policing, right, to downgrade. In both cases, they wanted to downgrade sexual policing as a waste of police resources, departmental resources. Um, but in each case, too, you have both either in the case of Boston, a, an antagonistic mayor, or in the case of Atlanta, a highly mobilized consortium of Atlanta businessmen hammering hard on the issue of prostitution in particular to make a claim that prostitution produced violent criminality, to make a claim that Black women in particular um, were agents of economic decline and urban decay. And, you know, it was a very vulnerable pressure point, particularly in Atlanta for, you know, Black uh, political leaders and Black police authorities. So that's a very roundabout way to get to your question of the limits of reform and the, um, the, 
white poli- white elite politics of crime that these sort of reform-minded leaders had to negotiate. Absolutely, and yeah, I mean, some of the, um, I mean, it's it, it speaks to the um, the kind of institutional pressures that these people faced, and their kind of the the role that they necessarily needed to play uh, in the in, in those positions. That you know, they had these often, you know, quite sharp uh, and. Um, quite sharp and uh, expansive critiques of um, what uh, un- unrestricted police discretion could do, and yet they uh, they they were um, they, they they could only hope to kind of um, insulate it from uh, insulate it from uh, uh, its critics. Um, yeah, you know, but I think also I should name, right? That yeah, they have these institutional pressures, absolutely, but they're also not about to relinquish their own power, right? So I think that, you know, what they were trying to do was maybe modulate, right, police power, but they weren't about to relinquish their right to engage in highly discretionary forms of policing, right? So even though they would maybe downgrade sex policing as a priority, they were absolutely, you know, not about to um uh, relinquish their power. You know, De Grazia himself never publicly supported decriminalization. De Grazia himself, you know, stonewall, stonewalled a uh, caucus of radical black local, or urban politicians, right? You know, who were making um, really specific um, demands for um, for changes in police practices. Um, so. Yes, but I but as you were talking, I was like, oh, I need to make it clear, though, you know, it's not just the institutional pressures. It's also this continued investment in their own power. Yeah, no, totally. That's well taken, especially with, um, I mean, police in this period becoming increasingly, I guess, self-interested in uh, in local politics and unions becoming active in electoral campaigns. Um Although uh, uh, that that interesting point is kind of beyond the scope of of uh, our discussion, um, so I I mean so your book uses these uh, has your book is very kind of like wide in its temporal and geographic scope, and um, I'm wondering if you could talk about how you went about kind of setting the boundaries for your study and why you chose the cases that you did. Yes. And so I will, um, I'll just name the structure of the book real quickly. So folks uh, might, you know, if there's something that's interesting, they can just dip in. So, um, you know, it starts with uh, two national chapters looking at, um, sexual policing and the sort of um, uh, the establishment and enforcement of black neighborhoods. So the segregation of black neighborhoods nationwide. Um, and alongside that, this doubled segregation, both of, um, of uh, racial segregation and the segregation of so-called vice to black neighborhoods during the prohibition. Um, and then there's also, and the depression, and then there's also, so that's chapter one, and then there's a chapter, a national chapter looking at World War II, right? Sex policing during World War II. 
Um, and then the next three chapters follow chronologically, but in three urban case studies. So looking at this mid-century moment and the ways in which white women's um, presumed sexual, straight sexual practices get decriminalized alongside the growing professionalization of police departments in the post-war period. Um, and then we go to Boston to look at, you know, sort of the roots of the so-called urban crisis, which was really a crisis for Black women on city streets as sexual policing becomes much more systematically designed to target Black women um, and to um, move from a strategy of Black containment to a strategy of Black banishment from city streets. Um, and then Atlanta, where we see in the 80s, where we see the... Um, the development of what would become broken windows policing and the centrality of um, sexually profiled Black women and to kind of to resurrect uh, status policing laws that had been declared unconstitutional um, in 1970. Shoot, Papa Christou versus Jacksonville, 74, maybe. Um, so the resurrection of status policing laws um, and the way that that played out in Atlanta. Um, and then, so those are the three urban case studies. And then I close with um, this chap the chapter I mentioned on competing forms of feminist activisms responding to the consolidation of police power in the 80s and 90s, um, with a particular focus on um, both anti-violence or, you know, activism around violence against women and um, Black feminist responses to, and sex workers uh, activist responses to this um, uh, reign of terror of serial murders of predominantly Black women um, during the 80s. Um, so that's largely the structure, right? So half of the book is national, and then half of the book is these urban case studies. Um, I will be totally honest with you, Patrick, that um, the cities themselves were chosen <laughs> Boston, where I lived at the time, Los Angeles, where my family lived, and where I had uh, a free place to stay when I went to do research. And I just want to name particularly for, um, you know, for, for graduate students who are listening, or really anyone who's thinking about what research means in the pandemic, that, you know, research itself is a contingent process. And we are often defined by our constraints. It was cheap and accessible. It was relatively cheap and accessible for me to go to Boston and Los Angeles to do my research. And so that's why I did it. And of course, when I was working on my dissertation, um, you know, I would regularly get questions like, well, why Boston, Los Angeles? Why not New York and San Francisco, where there's a much more developed archive for this? And it was super useful and beneficial for me to have to justify why Boston and Los Angeles. And um, and as I did that work, I became really, I was persuaded that um, this story could be told in distinct ways, but could absolutely be told in any big city um, in the U.S. in the 20th century. Um, and then, so my dissertation had Boston and LA and uh, the broken windows chapter in the dissertation was largely just national, but I knew I really wanted another, I wanted a third city. I knew I wanted a city in the South because um, I traced throughout, um, you know, uh, black activisms and anti-racist activisms um, 
against policing and sexual policing. And so I knew I wanted a city in the South to see how these sort of racist and anti-racist dynamics were playing out. Um, and, you know, and specifically how Black women's lives were being affected um, after um, the urban crisis. So um, that was also just a total... Uh, it was not, it was an educated guess, right? My advisor had given me as sort of a graduation gift funding to go to one Southern city. And I had narrowed it down to, to New Orleans, to Houston and to Atlanta. And I really, after poking around at the finding aids, landed on Atlanta, particularly because there was this really large archive um, for CAP Inc., the Center for Atlanta Progress, which was this, and it still is this um, sort of, you know, consortium of, of downtown business elites in Atlanta. Um, and um, I had <laughs> I had seen enough in the finding aid to think that that might be a really promising avenue. So I just really rolled the dice and went. Um, so I just want to be super clear, right, that the process of researching this was fully based on constraints, right, where I could go um, and just sort of um, uh, where I, you know, had gotten funding to go. And after that, it was just sort of looking at finding aids and thinking about, um, you know, seeing lots and lots of folders for public safety, you know, and seeing lots and lots of folders for, um, you know, uh, for, for urban crime in Atlanta. So I'm really hopeful and astonished at the kinds of archives that graduate students have been developing, have been creating through the pandemic. And I really do believe that, especially for 20th century Americanists, um, the constraints of the pandemic are actually going to spark new archives, new findings, right? It's actually constraints are not a bad thing. I think that constraints are actually really, um, you know, um, exciting. Um, and so that is, that was the process. <laughs> um, it was extremely random. It was, you know, somewhat random just based on contingency. And I just want to stress that, you know, I think that that's what persuades me both, right, that this story could be told throughout the U.S. and big throughout the urban U.S., but also that, you know, the story is there if you're looking for it and, um, and creating your own archive along the way. Yeah, that's very encouraging. Thank you. Um, uh, I, I, I do like to think that there is some freedom and form as we uh, yeah, navigate those material constraints. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the Center for Atlanta Progress because I think one of the contributions you're making is to kind of, uh, at a local level, show how movements uh, for the expansion of and expansion and protection of police discretion were built um and how they um you know worked with you know kind of increasingly emboldened uh uh police administrators and rank and file officers and the politicians that allied with them to um you know uh lobby for legislation uh uh um and protest those who were um criticizing police discretion um so i mean i'm wondering 
what what do case studies like these and maybe you could just take the Atlant take the Atlanta case as uh, as uh, an example because it's somewhat novel uh, in a historiography that focuses on um, the kind of post industrial uh, uh, Northeast and Midwest. Um, what what did these case studies do for our understanding of kind of uh, the moment of th- this moment in which like what we understand now to be like mass incarceration or the carceral state to be like kind of coming into formation? Yeah, so, um, you know, it was really important to me to ground the story of the expansion of police power through sexual policing, right? Through the targeting of sexually profiled women on city streets. It was really important for me to ground that in in urban life, right? Um, And in the everyday experiences of women on city streets. And to do that, um, I really wanted to tell sort of these rich kind of mini stories about each city that I was going to. Um, The Atlanta case shows us how broken windows policing was first, how broken windows policing was developed right before the 1982 Atlantic article by James Q. Wilson and his co-author, whose name I am now forgetting. I tell my students all the time, I'm like, trivia is not history. You can just Google it. (laughs) Um, Maybe you remember his name, Patrick. Um, So I... Um, right. So what's so important about Atlanta and even Boston by the late 70s is that, you know, um, urban elites, uh, businessmen, um, police themselves are coming to this idea that by targeting um, commercial sex, they can prevent larger order crimes. Right. So that prostitution, as they called it, um, produced violent crime and by targeting, and it also produced fear in middle-class white folks going to downtown entertainment districts in the seventies and early eighties. So, you know, a bunch of sort of white authorities and elites were coming to this idea that by targeting prostitution, you could produce, uh, you could uh, prevent higher order, more you know, higher order, more violent crimes as they thought, as they saw it, um, and also bring white capital, bring white homeowners um, back to cities by making them feel safe, right? By attending to their perceptions of crime, which were you know deeply racist. Um, so they're really coming to the ideas that would become broken windows policing um, before the article, before Wilson and his unnamed co-author um, published their theory of broken windows policing in the Atlantic in 82. Um, so what the Atlanta story shows us first is how they developed that idea, but it also shows us how how quickly like with this astonishing speed, urban planning goes from, you know, the sort of attention to urban infrastructure, urban transportation, to urban planning and urban policymaking being entirely about 
police policy, right? And police involvement. CAP is a really good example because, you know, when we first meet them in 1973, they had just issued in the book, they had just issued their first central area study. It's like the, the, um, it would become, well, so they issue this central area study and it's sort of this large um, um, multi-volume document or this large sort of, um, a large document involving multiple stakeholders, different task force, all different kinds of groups coming together to think about what's right for Atlanta, you know, recommendations for building up Atlanta. And in 1973, the Central Area Study 1 was all about transportation, the MARTA, right? Public infrastructure. By 1986, when they released Central Area Study 2, it's entirely about, so by 1986, it's a multi-million dollar research and recommendation project. And police are dominating the task forces. Um, the task forces themselves are organized around crime and public safety. And this is, um, and, and policing is dominating the recommendations, right? Expanding carceral capacity is dominating the central area study to recommendations. So you can really see this major shift just in really 13 years, right? Just in a long decade, right? Where policing moves from, you know, maybe a um, uh, an ancillary part of urban planning and policymaking to absolutely central to um, urban growth and development. And, you know, in the and in the Atlanta chapter, I talk about how CAP was obsessed, really, and continually pressing the mayor and other urban authorities on the issue of prostitution and on um, Black women as sex workers specifically. Like, they're very explicit. They're very clear about who they are most concerned about, who they consider the most urgent threat to urban prosperity as Black women profiled as sex workers. Um, so to your question about the... Um, you know, what this tells us about the formation of the carceral state, um, you know, it, and, and as you rightly pointed out, CAP is engaging in a variety of different projects, right, in order to force the issue, in order to bring police, right, to the center of urban planning. Um, and as you point out, right, so that means that they're going to be doing lawmaking, a lot of lawmaking. That means that they're going to be doing a lot of lobbying and public relations work. Um, and they run lots of uh, different kinds of stunts, um, like uh, um, while also running demonstration projects, like public-private partnerships to fund different um, mass saturation of police units on downtown city streets, um, all you know, with a recurring with a recurring refrain of targeting sexually profiled women in particular. Right. So um, what this tells us about the formation of mass incarceration is identifying who the major um, players are, right? Who is, who's pushing these policies and how are they doing it, right? What are the legal processes? What are the 
um, on the ground lobbying processes, right? Um, how are they talking to each other? They, Cap definitely says the, the quiet part loud in their internal correspondence and memos, right? How are they framing what the work they're doing? So you can see through the Atlantis story, right? Um, uh, and another reason why it's important to ground it in a city itself is it's just, you know, there are distinct players, there are distinct um, dynamics of racism and sexism playing out. Um, these are all unique to Atlanta, though you can look in other places and identify, right? Who are the who are the major players here, right? Who are the folks trying to um, dominate the discourse, right? And how are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Um, and for whose benefit? Um, and so we can see very clearly, right, that CAP is doing this for their own economic growth, but because in particular they feel like um, that the city is becoming increasingly black, as they literally, you know, as they say very clearly, um, you know, blackness is a problem. Blackness is um, uh, black women are a problem, as they argued, right? And so they had this very deliberate set of um, agenda items in order to get to a place where it would not just be about black women being targeted on city streets, though that was a really important wedge issue, but also about getting police, right, to be in control of um, and to, to sort of establish police as the ultimate solution to urban wealth um, and pro and safety, right? And that necessarily went hand in glove with expanding the carceral capacity, expanding police power um, to basically arrest and banish folks on site. Absolutely. And I feel like what you've just kind of outlined uh, has helped me because it helps us see the, um, the kind of variety of actors, all of whom, you know, were, um, you know, had some kind of advantage or, 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 uh, uh, favorable position, uh, uh, in, in the local economy, you know, cap was composed, as you say, mostly of, uh, business owners downtown who were invested in, uh, getting dollars flowing back to the urban core. But, uh, I think, recently a lot of police history has helpfully focused on um, kind of the, the actions of police themselves in um, bolstering uh, 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 policing and criminal justice overall uh, as part of kind of social policy. Um, but I do think that we still need analyses that tell us how police built coalitions with a variety of other actors. Um, just because I think that is how blocks of power who can, you know, affect policy or blocks of actors that can affect policy get built. And also because quite frankly, uh, the police are, the police themselves are powerful, but we shouldn't let, um, we shouldn't let, other groups of people off the hook, um, in my view. Yeah, a, a million percent. Yes, right. Because, um, uh, 
you know, because I'm I, in Atlanta, at least, you know, I'm really seeing cap driving these agendas, right? You know, by the time Reggie Eves um, is relieved of his post due to, um, you know, totally cap generated and white generated um, controversy over, um, per, you know, a, a presumed um, favoritism that Eves was demonstrating toward black police officers. And um, so that's um, a different story. But, um, you know, Lee Brown becomes the next uh, police chief after Eves. And he is, um, you know, and he's kind of developing what would become his community policing program, right? Um, and so, you know, he's absolutely um, making a case like sort of an early and then an explicitly broken windows policing case for, you know, developing relationships with local residents in order to basically manufacture consent for police power, um, which is a, a certainly um, a feature of broken windows policing, um, which is, um, you know, absolutely, if, if you also think about this Atlanta history within the context of the Atlanta youth murders that are also happening at the same time, right, this sort of devastating and terrifying um, uh, series of murders in the Atlanta, in Atlanta's black and working class communities, uh, poor and working class communities, um, you can see that, you know, community policing is only legitimate, right, when uh, residents are not demanding more police action or taking matters into their own hands, like with the bat patrol, but are instead, you know, simply supporting and, and urging on more police action. Um, you know, so Lee Brown develops this community p- policing platform and CAP absolutely supports it and um, develops uh, and is enters into partnerships with the Atlanta Police Department um, to um, to develop these little these uh, neighborhood units of community police programs that knit together residents and police. Um, so that's really important, right? But CAP is funding a lot of that. Well, the LEAA is funding it, but CAP is also um, uh, you know making these sealing these partnerships and backing them right so uh you know even the the reforms right that police to to your earlier point about liberal policing right even the the so-called reforms that um you know that police leaders like brown are pushing at the time you have to look at like who's funding it who's behind it right who's entering into these partnerships um, because that also tells us a lot about the priorities and the um, agendas that are driving these so-called reforms, um, and which can tell us a lot about how the pr- reforms, like community policing, will play out on the ground. For sure. Um, I feel like uh, there's an example in the Atlanta chapter of one of the um, coalitions that CAP kind of helps or works to put together. And you mention um, this uh, individual, Dolores French, of hooking his real employment. And um, I thought the I thought her presence uh, on on this coalition that kind of 
worked to, um, you know, secure policing as as a form of redevelopment strategy uh, was really surprising. Perhaps one of the more one of the bigger surprises that I encountered in the book. So, and it also functioned as a great um, hinge between um, your case studies and the kind of intellectual history that you get in at the end of the book. So um, I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, Dolores French in particular and maybe what the, what her example says about, you know, uh, divi- divisions that you explore later between sex work, b- between sex workers and feminists in general. Yeah, so um, I'm. I love that you're mentioning Dolores French. Um, so she served on the mayor's task force on prostitution in Atlanta in the mid 1980s. Not without controversy, not without protest. The mayor assembled this task force definitely in response to um, outrage that Cap was stoking around, you know, visible commercial sex in um, downtown Atlanta. And, um, and she was, um, appointed and to this task force, you know, and she's definitely operating in this sex workers rights moment, um, through in particular, the creation of her organization, as you said, higher hooking is real employment. Um, she showcases for me the compatibility of sexual liberalism with, or, you know, in this sort of urban cosmopolitan liberalism with broken windows policing. Because through her work on the task force, the they reached recommendations, they reached a compromise where um, sex workers indoors were not going to be considered the priority, the real problem, the the task force ultimately note, said in their report was um, street level commercial sex, which produced a variety of urban harms, including, you know, more violent crimes and, you know, urban deterioration, loss of capital investment, loss of white home ownership, right? So loss of this um, white middle-class tax base. So the idea was the mayor's task force on on prostitution as in their recommendations was basically not to concern themselves with indoor commercial sex, which was largely practiced by white women and to focus instead on street level commercial sex, which was, um, uh, overrepresented by black women um but it also meant that 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 black women on city streets would be profiled right as sex workers whether or not they're actively engaging in sex work or not um so you know french so this recommendation showcases how you can be both sexually liberal cosmopolitan put this sex worker activist on your task force and still end up with recommendations for aggressive street level policing of women on city streets in particular black women on city streets um and you know i think french also you know, is an emblem, is emblematic of a trend that I trace across the book, right? Where we go from the liberalization of sex laws, um, you know, 
white women in the earlier half of the 20th century were routinely arrested for engaging in straight, presumed to be engaging in straight non-marital sex, whether it was commercial or not, um, especially if they were seen with men of color, but also just, um, you know, through the 60s, if they were seen with men who um, were not their husbands, they would be um, uh, vulnerable to arrest, right? So you see the, the relaxation of these laws, certainly by the 70s, you see not just a tolerance for um, oh, uh, white women engaging in commercial sex, but a sort of a celebration because they would lure tourists and suburban folks to the cities. I mean, Boston and Atlanta in the 70s and 80s are actively seeking out convention business, tourist business, right? So um, uh, white commercial sex, you know, white sex workers are very, um, are tolerated, if not um, actively encouraged, right? So, um, you know, so as the sexual liberalization is happening, though, in the very same moment that the state is retreating from um, regulation, regulating straight non-marital sex, um, and even making room for uh, the possibility of, you know, sex districts and legalized sex districts. Um, there's also this massive investment at the local and state and federal level in, you know, broken windows policing, mass misdemeanor policing on city streets, um, and aggressively um, targeting humans who are thought to produce and be in of themselves disordered, right, or disorderly. Yeah, and that also kind of comports with the uh, um, transition to kind of a service economy that's happening around the same time as many people have documented kind of uh, uh, needing to, um, you know, develop an entertainment district or to attract tourism to recoup uh, job loss in industry. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so Dolores French showcases that moment, right? Um, by being on this task force, this is sort of the, the ultimate, right, reflection of the liberalization of, um, of sex laws, right? Um, or the liberalization of the politics of sex work, which is, you know, reserved as for white women like Dolores French, um, while at the same time, um, you know, this doubling down on broken windows policing, which the task force that French served on recommended. And I will just say really quickly that CAP was not satisfied with this task force report and even submitted their own sort of minority report where they said that um, this did not go far enough in targeting um, uh, sex workers. So, but then the question is, right, so the question then becomes in this moment, um, and so to get to your point, your question about competing feminisms, um, so this is the moment we end with, right? Where white women have unprecedented, especially poor and working class white women have unprecedented freedoms to move through city space, um, free from legal punishment. Um, we also see the um, a rising investment and intensification in the systematic targeting of Black women on city streets. Um, around the same time, late 1970s, early 1980s, we begin to see a major spike, an alarming and devastating spike in the serial murders of 
predominantly black women who are thought to be presumed to be engaged in commercial sex or actually engaged in commercial sex. Um, Starting with um, black feminist mobilizations like in Boston with the Combahee River Collective or with anti-capitalist multiracial feminist organizations like Wages for Housework, um, these groups are starting to uh, develop this really powerful analysis that police violence actually produced this non-state violence against women. Um, one of the wages for housewife, for housework activists put it very clearly as quite violent. So I'll just offer a quick content warning. Um, police hunt down hookers. So the message is that anyone can hunt down hookers, right? Um, basically, the argument is that, um, you know, because police are aggressively targeting sexually profiled Black women as the problem, for cities um, and literally seeking to banish them from the city in order you know, on behalf of so-called public safety and wealth. Um, they also, that also means that they don't care, right? When um, these same women are um, harmed or murdered by non-state men, right? By individual men. Um, and so this is a really powerful and important argument um, state violence multiplies state and non-state violence against vulnerable women. Um, and I just also want to name that one of the major leaders from Wages for Housework, who then goes on to start an organization or a coalition, coalition fighting back against serial murders in Los Angeles, Margaret Prescott, um, was one of the, you know, earliest visionaries, um, theorizing defund before there was even a word for defund, right? By the 1980s in Los Angeles, Margaret Prescott was arguing that the, the enormous amounts of money during a period of tremendous economic austerity, the, the enormous amounts of money going to policing and in particular prostitution and drug policing should be redirected um, to education, to healthcare, to other social services, right? That those resources are actually more likely to uh, promote women's safety than and black and brown women's safety than policing, right? So Margaret Prescott was uh, was saying that you know decades before defund. Um, um, so there's this activism happening at the same time, though, particularly among predominantly white women. Um, I call them dominance feminists in the book um, because it speaks to this very specific uh, genealogy of white legal feminists or white legal scholars, white feminist legal scholars. Um, but today I think we would call them carceral feminists. They're arguing instead, right, that police produce safety, right, and police perform a protective job right, for women, for, because they're identifying the main source of harm, not as state, not coming, not generating from state violence, but rather generating from individual men. Pimps was the major concern, right? So, um, so there's these debates on this one hand, we see this sort of visionary lineage of Black feminist 
activists um, coming, producing this really compelling and I think still resonant argument for uh, how to understand state violence in women's lives. Um, while at the same time, we have the equally enduring um, carceral feminists who are advocating right for the expansion of police power, for the buildup of police power um, in the name of protection for women. And so I think that, you know, that endures as a major um, set of politics that we need to reckon with. Yes, thank you for outlining all of that. And I feel like what's one thing that I learned in that last chapter was um, just how uh, involved and or proximate to the policymaking uh, process some of these uh, dominance feminist uh, legal scholars were. I mean, I was you know, somewhat familiar with, um, debates that happened, um, in, um, the pages of law reviews and magazines, but I did not know that, you know, their participation in these debates, uh, veered into actual activism and advocacy. And I think that that's, um, I don't know, super important as we, super important, uh, to consider as we think about, um, I don't know, the grad labor movement and also how graduate students can work with people outside or people who are of different people are, who are differently positioned within their community for uh, a, a better world. Um, because the, I don't know, the participation of the, um, dominance feminists in the kind of making of a, of a, uh, uh, you know, a more punitive, uh, uh, kind of prostitution related legal code was definitely shocking to me. Yes. There's so much energy and funding and resources coming from law schools during this period. Um, and it was really driven by these feminist legal scholars. Uh, Catherine McKinnon um, was one of the major um, players in this history, but many other law professors were too. Um, you know, and they were also bringing in law students, right? Um, so absolutely, it's a model, at least for thinking about how you can grow networks and connections um, from, you know, from these sites of institutional authority, um, you know, whether for, you know, for, uh, for a variety of different purposes, um, and I totally love the connection you're making between grad organizing. I was involved in um, grad organizing as well. So I fully support y'all. And I think that I any inspiration you can get from this book, <laughs> I um, that gives me great joy. Um, but yeah, these, you know, law professors, you know, they were actively engaged in, um, so they were bringing together, right, police uh, probation officers, you know, prosecutors, defenders, they were bringing in all of these different, uh, groups, you know, and, um, uh, and developing from these groups sets of, um, you know, proposals and, and actual laws that were passed. Um, and then in fact, you know, laws in particular, um, around 
well, it would actually be too long probably to get into it, but you can check it out in the book, right? They're passing these laws that uh, really don't, as Kimberly Crenshaw asked, you know, do these move the needle in terms of protection and safety for women? They don't really move the needle, but what they did, what these laws that were designed to, um, uh, you know, empower police and individual women to sue for their own safety, um, but also empowering police to banish women from city streets, to expand the laws, uh, to allow police to incarcerate, arrest and incarcerate um, sexually profiled women. Um, you know, they, you know, from these law schools, from these sites of institutional authority, they developed really um, wide ranging and um, still on the books, right? Still in place um, uh, policies, uh, law enforcement policies that, you know, I think the most, um, that even if they didn't move the needle for women or if they made women more vulnerable, what they definitely did was establish police as feminist, right? Establish policing as feminist, establish policing as um, a protective service for women. And I think that in itself is something that we still really need to reckon with. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, this final chapter, um, among others in this book, um, are, in my view, really important for those who are, those among us who are thinking about uh, the backlash against the uh, defund movement uh, that's, you know, kind of been happening ever since it's, it's since it kind of got reignited two years ago. And uh, I also uh, really appreciated that you pointed out uh, its origins in the uh, like sex workers rights movement. Uh, definitely something um, important to consider as uh, we uh reflect on this history that we're still living with. Um, in the interest of time, I was wondering if we could uh, conclude the interview uh, with a brief discussion on uh, what you're working on now. And uh, I don't know how you see it relating to this work, if at all. Yeah. So I, um, uh, so I am hoping to write a biography of Eileen Warnos. Uh, she was a sex worker, um, a white sex worker who murdered, um, I believe, eight men um, in self-defense, as she explained, um, and was executed by the state of Florida in 2003. Um, I still haven't seen it, but um, Monster with Charlize Theron uh, was the was based on her life. Um, I. We'll say quickly that I I had always gotten a lot of energy from Eileen Bornos. I had quotes of hers up on my bulletin board as I was writing this book. Um, but, you know, I was really avoiding, I did not think I would write this, uh, write her life, right, um, or write this biography because I, while she was incarcerated before she was executed, she was really... Um, outraged that people were profiting off of her story. I was really reluctant to participate in that. And yet at the same time, there's so much true crime garbage out there, um, you know, sort of sensationalizing her as 
um, you know, America's first female serial killer. There's also a lot of um, feminist work on her that I don't, that troubles me reducing her life to one of trauma, something is a life defined by trauma. And what I'm so excited about, and I'm talking about this with um, one of a lovely, brilliant colleague, comrade Heather Berg, is um, that I think we really need to reckon with what it means to cede a monopoly on violence to the state, right? Um, and to really reckon with what it means that Eileen Mornos sort of clawed back some of that violence, right? Um, and to, to think that maybe a life that is... Um, a life that was struggling, right, to say the very least, with um, violence, um, non-state and state violence, right, that maybe it would make total sense, right, to, to murder men. Um, and what does it mean for us as feminist abolitionists to really take seriously um, what happens when women murder men um, and why women would do that, right? Um to, to ask if maybe that makes total sense as opposed to pathologizing it or um, reducing it only to trauma. Um, so thinking a lot about armed self-defense um, and how to reconcile it with, um, with feminist abolitionism, um, but also just to uh, dignify her life, right? To kind of, um, to write a story that Eileen deserves that uh, recovers it from this either sensationalizing or pathologizing narratives that um, uh, that really dominate the culture right now. That sounds like a critical and worthwhile project, and I look forward to uh, reading uh, your work on it. Uh, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Patrick, and best of luck on your work. I'm excited. I'm excited for you, and I'm excited for us to read it. Thank you. 